shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley-Shirky, with me as Thrasher. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the podcast, The End of the Universe. That's right, we are talking about episodes 5 and 6 of the BBC miniseries Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which roughly cover the material uh, in the novel Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at the Hitchhiker's Guide feature film, and then the week after that, we are looking at uh, doing sort of a a gap filler episode with the newest uh, police story movie, uh, of which the title I can't remember right now. Well, it's it's one of our it's one of our now classic sequel catch-ups. Right, because uh, on the original series we did uh, Police Story one, two, three, and four, and it has like spin-offs. But as far as the main series goes, the um, the new one the the title in China was Police Story twenty thirteen. That didn't come out in the United States until like this past year, and under the title Police Story Lockdown. Hmm. So, and it's supposed to be pretty uh, serious. I haven't, I, and I know next to nothing about it. But back to the uh, this uh, miniseries. <laughs> so last week we talked about the first four episodes, which are a pretty faithful retelling of the book. And yet, um, to cover the second book, we only get two episodes. So that that's a bit of an adaptation. Problem, which which is you know why we divided the miniseries up into the, into these parts the way we did, and on one hand I can understand why they really only adapted the second half of the second book for the last two episodes of the Hitchhiker's miniseries because there's a lot of crazy action in the first half of that book involving uh, machines that upload the totality of your perspective of the universe back into your own head. And there's a whole thing with frog star fighters invading the offices of the hitchhikers publishing company, the publishing. Yeah. And Um, and yet, you know, the BBC did such a valiant effort trying to depict all these other impossible things I would have loved to have seen what they would have done had they adapted the entirety of the second book for this second half of the miniseries. I mean, I think you're right. The The budget, um, I mean, not, you know, science fiction is never cheap to do, uh, really. But especially for, for television, of all things. And the BBC is known from, you know, especially the old school Doctor Who stuff for looking a bit cheap. And, um, and, and the, yet the first, it wasn't the first cheap. Half, this, this was well, right. expensive. No, they spent a lot of money, right? This the, was an expensive program. And, the BBC um, canceled shows to make this miniseries happen. Did we mention what shows they canceled? Do we know that? Uh, well, the, the the one that I remember off the top of my head uh, was The Goodies. Uh, the Goodies were not hmm. renewed for another series to to help shore up the budget for Hitchhikers, which is why, for their final season, The Goodies moved to ITV. I see. Um... Yeah, and you know, if they, as as you mentioned, you know, if they would have adapted the first half of this book, it, it uh, the action reads like something out of Die Hard, right, with people jumping out of windows 
into explosions and pretty exciting stuff. Um, and, and yet some of the series' best humor is in that first part. I love the running gag about elevators that can predict the future. <laughs> right, yeah, no, you have some, some smart humor in there, uh, guide entries or not, uh, stuff with some absurd stuff with Marvin. Um, it feel even though, and uh, we, we should mention, Restaurant at the End of the Universe is the, the book... And, you know, by extension, the last two episodes of the BBC series, which we're covering on this episode, are, um, God, I'm sleepy this morning. The last two episodes, they're adapted from the second season of the uh, radio show. Because that, like, he was writing the book at the same time as producing the second season. And so there's crossover, but the second season of the radio show is, like, quite different in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's, that's true. And something else I want to talk about in these last two episodes, it, yeah. it feels like they ran out of money. Uh, because both both of these last two episodes, we've seen some amazing, huge sci-fi vistas with some crazy special effects in the first four episodes. But these last two episodes, most of them are confined to one or two sets. Yeah, and I think one is more effective than the other. Uh, before we really take a deep dive into this, as we do here on Sequel Cast 2, uh, let's just give like a high-level description of what happens. Granted, it'll, this this won't make a lot of sense if you haven't read the books or, or seen the show because it's just so strange what happens. Well, if remember, we left off uh, last uh, last week. Um, the episode four ended with a massive data bank exploding, apparently killing <laughs> yes. the entire cast of the miniseries. That's quite disorienting way to end an episode, and you got two more episodes to go. Yeah, but this ep- this episode begins with the entire cast waking up on the floor of a uh, of sort of a bar lounge, and initially they think that they must be in the afterlife, which leads mm-hmm. to some fun dialogue. But then it turns out no. They're at Millieways, the restaurant at the end of the universe, and apparently one of them made a reservation specifically to teleport them from the past into the future at the moment the databank exploded, so they didn't actually die. Right, um, episode five, and again, this is a high-level you know, description of the plot, um, they end up stealing a car from the, uh, the parking lot that's an all-black... Uh, car that's property of a, a, a super loud heavy metal rock band called Disaster Area, which is a great name for a band. And between those two points, it's mostly uh, witty dialogue. <laughs> yeah, witty dialogue and sort of restaurant, fancy restaurant satire. Um, <laughs> and I love how much fun this episode has with time travel. The whole, the whole thing with Millie Ways is just a whole series of compounded and recursive time travel jokes. We also, um, in the final episode of the series, the ship they've stolen is going to crash into the sun, and they've got to figure out how to get out of that pickle. Well, let, let's get to that when we get there. Well, okay, there, sure. There's yeah, a so lot of, like, absolutely. doing a lot of such a things going weird on. sketch is doing a very, a very big disservice to the story. Fine. Uh, so let's, let's jump in with episode five. Um, as we mentioned, they start in sort of this... Uh, lounge bar like waiting area kind of a lobby of uh the restaurant at the end of the, of the universe i found it a bit strange 
that the head waiter, Garkbit, the way he and a lot of other characters pronounce restaurant is a French pronunciation. Oh, but I think the idea is the place is supposed to be ridiculously posh, which is why is he always okay. says, the restaurant. Yeah, restaurant. And even the narration of uh, the book, the restaurant at the end of the universe. Right, so... Um, there's that. I think you mentioned uh, both of these uh, final two episodes that we're talking about uh, here of the uh, Hitchhiker's miniseries are a bit, um, you know, limited to one set more or less. But I really like the portrayal of the restaurant at the end of the universe. It's not as crowded as you might have imagined reading the book or listening to the radio show, but it has enough of a sense of scale. You get a wide shot showing a lot of different aliens in there. You you also see this is one of the few points in the in the movie where where the BBC recycles any makeup or costumes. So a lot of the alien outfits we've seen in the first four episodes are reused on different aliens. Although there there are some sort of fun insider gags uh, when there's one of we we are introduced to several important parties who are there dining at the restaurant. And one of the parties is a group of like ecumenical scholars and religious thinking persons. And mm. two of those people are the two people who asked deep thought about the, uh, about the, ult- about the ultimate, who received the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. Right. Um, as, as far as like new actors in here, the one that I recognized is David Prowse, who was the oh, man yeah. in the suit of Darth Vader in the uh, original classic trilogy meaning Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And they do take um, advantage of his height. I mean, he is huge and imposing as this sort of space gangster bodyguard character. Yeah, I've met him at a convention. I got to see him talk. Um, he is a grumpy, grumpy, bitter man. Yeah, well, I mean, he, um, he and, and there's a in, right. kind of screwed by George Lucas at one point. You know? Sort of. Um, yeah, he, you know, he didn't play, uh, play ball with the press and... It, it it bit him in the ass um, way too hard. Uh, I'll agree with that. But he, I mean, David Browse, aside from being a professional uh, bodybuilder, I mean, he was the man that got uh, Christopher Reeve in shape for Superman the motion picture. Oh, yeah. And um, But he, he invented, he also has some patents. He invented, uh, I don't know, I forget where I read this, but probably Starlog. They mentioned he came up with a set of weights that you fill with water. So you can take them on the go, and they're nice and portable for weightlifters. And uh, he's also uh, one of the thugs in uh, Clockwork Orange, the Stanley Kubrick picture. Oh, nice! So I mean, he has a career, and you get to see you get to see his face. You get to see him talk here, and, and um, that's the thing because apparently this the story goes that when Star Wars is being recorded or was being filmed, he mm-hmm. was told that he would be the voice of Darth Vader. So he spoke all the Darth Vader lines, and it yeah. wasn't until late in the process that James Earl Jones was brought in to dub all the dialogue. And apparently that always stuck in Proust's craw because he, he, he was not told about that ahead of time. And it may have, in fact, screwed him out of... Well, no, I guess Star Wars wasn't a union production, was it? Uh, they did it in England, so I, I don't believe so. And uh, they used a lot of British actors, so... I, I have no idea what the BBC SAG equivalent is. Yeah, I don't know um, if it affected... I don't know if, like, having his speaking part removed, like, affects, like, residuals or royalties or whatnot. Um, but 
but yeah, that 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 really that really bothered him that that uh, that James Earl Jones kind of took took the vocal part that he had worked on. So it's nice being able to hear Prue speak, even though there is a bit of distortion they put on his voice to make him sound a bit more intimidating and alien. Right, they they deepen it a bit. Um, but um, uh, before we get back to Hitchhikers, I want to point out two more reasons why David Prowse is upset at George Lucas and Lucasfilm and all that. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, the second one is during Empire Strikes Back. It was alleged he talked to the press. He was the one that leaked to the press that uh, Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. Oh, wow. And actually, there's a documentary, um, I think made by like Argentine filmmakers or something like that, called I Am Your Father, that sort of goes into tracking down who the real leaker was. And oddly enough, um, unfortunately, it's one of those documentaries where I, I don't really like it, where... Uh, the director becomes a character in the documentary. Mm. And unless you're Michael Moore or someone with some presence, it comes off as irritating. But that's just my, my preference. Um, and he convinces... Uh, he refilms the Return of the Jedi scene where they take off the mask with um, Spanish actors. And he has David Prowse paid Earth Vader and you can see his face. Huh. But unfortunately... Uh, Lucasfilm, which I think at the time the Disney purchase just happened, gave them permission to film it, but you said you can't show this footage anywhere and you cannot include it in your documentary. (laughs) Oh, wow. So you don't even see them, you can't even see the footage of them really filming it, and you can't see the, like, it's a lot of build-up to, um... Not a great reveal, but it's 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 a somewhat interesting documentary. I'm your father, and then really quick, the third thing. Then we'll go back to talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy episodes five and six. <laughs> dear listeners, thank you for our patience. We like Star Wars. What can you say? Um, he was very upset in uh, Star Wars episode three, uh, Revenge of the Sith, that he was not Darth Vader. He was not in the suit. But I will say David Prowse has had a lot of knee and health issues. A lot of really tall guys do, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, yep. And, I mean, he's he's 82 years old. He's still he's still kicking, right? And doing, doing the convention circuit. And um, the, the name of his Star Wars memoir is, um, un, is one of the most hilarious names. And I, I don't think he meant it to be as funny as it is, but it's straight from the force's mouth. <laughs> wow. Which is a, a really terrible, terrible pun. Well, wasn't wasn't like the original title something like "I Am Vader" or whatnot? And Lucasfilm threatened to sue him over the use of Vader in the title. Yeah, although when he does signatures, he always writes "I Am Vader" on the signatures. I think, which doesn't help his uh, relationship. But yeah, he wasn't. In, he's not invited to uh, you know the the Star Wars worldwide conventions or, or anything. He's he's blacklisted, man. Um, but yeah, it's fun to see him as a bodyguard. He's well cast. You know, when you see the um, oh, gee, is Max Quirtle playing? Is he sort of the MC at the restaurant? Oh God, he is the like every time. Like I, in my head, he and Bert Snick kind of occupy the same smarmy host category. But he is the perfect like he's he's half German or French cabaret MC and half cheesy British game show host, and it is perfect. And who's the person he reminds you of? I didn't recognize that name. Uh, uh, Bert Snicked from uh, Shock Treatment. 
Uh, yes. No, I thought the exact same thing. Like, especially the way the makeup is done. He also looked a lot like the, uh, many of the Transylvanians in uh, Rocky, in the original version of Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's that, yeah, sort of, like you said, cabaret, like sort of pancakey stage makeup, the very bright lips. The, the, the hair slicked back, the kind of, like, flared, uh, flared leisure suit. Right, like, the very, like, the and he 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 waits for the pauses for the laughs even when the laughs don't come like it's oh yeah and, and you get the feeling the guy has done this presentation like five million times and, and everything is like the everything he says is the setup to like a little kind of pithy joke mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of that's like it's not like deeply funny but it's just generally crowd pleasing <laughs> yeah and it's um a bit of Liberace in there too I would say. In that respect, a little, a little bit of that, yeah, and just like I love how he just goes from like solemn to to, to silly because I mean that is the present. The restaurant at the end of the universe—it's not a physical location; it's a temporal location. Oh, I it's love a place the where you concept. Can, yeah. You can eat a meal and watch everything end, and he, you know he has this. You know, this is the real thing because after this, there is nothing. Oblivion, absolute void. Except, of course, for the sweet trolley and our fine selection of Aldebel and liqueurs. <laughs> and I, I love in the... I think they do a few guide entries on the restaurant just because it's such a complicated uh, concept. But they mention... So, it, obviously, this is a very fancy, posh uh, restaurant. Um, expensive meal. How do you pay for it? And they recommend you deposit, like, a credit you in your bank one account. You deposit penny in a compound savings account. It's so account, by the time the, the interest, universe yeah. ends... The interest would have made so much money <laughs> that it pays for your meal and your time travel. I did, and, and watching this episode reminds me of uh, every so often I listen to uh, Rebel Force Radio. Uh, these guys have been doing Star Wars podcasts for quite some time. Mm. And uh, they mentioned there was a pop-up bar um, themed after the Star Wars Cantina. Not officially licensed, but I'm like... You could do something like that with Restaurant at the End of the Universe. I don't know how you decorate it, but that would have a lot of black light, I think. Um, I would I would love to go to something like that. And you could have, you know, drinks named after characters. I mean, there's a lot of... You could have a pan-galactic gargle blaster on the menu. There's a lot of fun things you could do with that. But, I mean, I love... I just... I love that this idea, because they, 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 they... The guide entry explaining how Millie Ways works is just so wonderful and detailed, and how there's a... It's a, a time bubble projected to the exact moment of the end of the universe, how you can book retroactively in advance. Um, you never run the risk of meeting yourself in the restaurant. And, and the wonderful thing is they never talk about time paradoxes. They just talk about how meeting yourself would be embarrassing and socially awkward and that's why you don't want to do it and that throughout the entire explanation this disclaimer keeps coming up that says this is a this is of course impossible i love the the ghoulish scene of uh there's the dish of the day oh this is probably the highlight of of this episode for me uh Mm because it's it's just a perfect encapsulation of douglas adams sense of humor and satire and the dish of the day is played by Peter Davison, the actor who portrayed the Fifth Doctor on Doctor Who. Also, wasn't Douglas Adams a vegetarian by this time? I don't know if he had if he had become a vegetarian at this point or not. But I mean, that, that's that's what I love about this scene is this sort of sci-fi exploration of the ethics of, of eating meat. 
and how the galaxy decided to solve this by breeding an animal that wanted to be eaten and was capable of saying so clearly and distinctly. And I just love the way the creature talks about itself the way like a cattle breeder might talk about a cow that he's trying to sell to a butcher. Perhaps you'd like some of my liver. Oh, it must be very tender by now. I've been force-feeding myself grain for months. Like, this creature is subjecting itself to inhumane treatment, but that's what it wants. And he's very upset when, uh, you know, Arthur Dent orders a salad. Oh, and then it even implies that the vegetables are conscious (laughs) and are capable of consenting to being eaten. Oh, he's like, what? Why shouldn't I have a green salad? Well, I know many vegetables that are very clear on why, sir. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, the vegetables don't consent to being eaten, but they're still intelligent. But it's just, just so great. And just I love the, the, you know, the cap on that. He's like, oh, all right, very well, four steaks. I'll just nip off and shoot myself. Don't worry, I'll be very humane. <laughs> so dark. Just so wonderfully dark, and I love even through all the makeup that they put Peter Davison in as the the alien megalocal creature. You can still get all these great expressions and takes and physical acting that he does. Yeah, I'm going to read a, a a passage here from the book of this scene. It's just it it, but that you know, seeing it in the miniseries really gets it across. A large dairy animal approached Zaphod Beeblebrox's table, a large, fat, meaty quadruped of the bovine type, with large, watery eyes, small horns, and what might have almost been an ingratiating smile on its lips. Good evening, it lowed, and sat back heavily in its haunches. I am the main dish of the day. May I interest you in parts of my body? (laughs) It's just such a uh, dark, funny scene... And that the clo- the closer, I'll I'll nip off and shoot myself. The delivery is just um, really well done, and I can't imagine how hot and sweaty that costume must have been for that actor. It's okay. Oh yeah, it is. It is a ridiculous amount of makeup to be to be put into in that weird puppet suit. Because that's the other thing is like all of its limbs are articulated, and it even has like the thing where like the back limbs like touch the front limbs. It's very cool. Um, I think of all the episodes, I think this is probably the most quotable uh, of all the miniseries episodes. This might be my most favorite. I think this is my favorite episode of this whole miniseries. And and it stands on its own very well. It does. I will say one thing that is not great about it, but it's also a criticism of the book. Marvin is really given the short shrift. Although that's kind of appropriate for Marvin, because like Mar- Marvin wasn't there when the data bank exploded, uh, but in the middle of the meal, they get a phone call, and it's Marvin, and it turns out Marvin works as a parking attendant uh, at Millieways, uh, and it turns out that Millieways was built over the remains of Magrathea, so... Marvin has been waiting for them to show up at the restaurant for trillions of years. Yeah. The first hundred trillion were quite awful. The second hundred trillion, they were the worst, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's just so droll. Um, And now, when, when they get to the car park, I think this is a scene where the special effects really fail them, because it's such a difficult concept to do visually with this 
car that's all black. Well, a, a vehicle, a starship that is so black, light falls into it, completely frictionless mm-hmm. hull. And it does, like, when you get to the close-ups of the hull, when they're interacting with the airlock and whatnot, it really does look like a cast-off Doctor Who set that's just been hastily spray-painted spray charcoal black. Well, it probably ex- was. In yeah. the exterior shots, it looks like a dust buster with a tube attached to it that has also been spray-painted charcoal black. In all honesty... <coughs> oh, excuse me. In all honesty, I think it would have been a more effective special effect if they had just made a silhouette of the spaceship and just had an expansive star field, and you just saw this empty spaceship-shaped hole in the star field. Yeah, I mean, the way I visualized it is being sort of sleek, like the uh, silver spaceship in Star Wars Phantom Menace, but being all black, sort of a black chrome... Um, with a lot of curves, a sexy-looking vehicle, and it just looks sort of like a lumpy mess. But you're, you're right. Or maybe even, I don't know, cut to a matte painting. I think that would have looked better than what they tried to do. Yeah, but I think um, I think they built a model because they knew they wanted to show something in some special effect shots later. Um, I'm I'm still gonna I'm still gonna be on Team Silhouette. That's gonna be my thing. Okay, Team Silhouette. I'm Team Matte Painting. Uh, my name is Matt. Of course, I'm on the matte painting team. <laughs> um, so I have, to, I have to ask though what do you think about the hot black Desiato scene that happens before all this eh not not crazy about it I think you're, you're trying to introduce uh, a villain sort of forcefully I mean that you can really draw no but it's just sort of you're, you're, you're setting up there's a relationship between the two between and... Ford Prefect and this Hot Black Desiato, the front man for the Disaster Area uh, rock band. Right, and even the entry on Disaster Area really pays off in, in what happens with the, the ship they happen to steal uh, in the parking lot. But it's it, it's okay. I mean, I think just the look of it, it looks like um, Baron Harkonnen done on the cheap. Like I just <laughs> A Harkonnen by way of Elvis, yeah. Right, it's, you know, I, I think it's slightly better than how the Vogons look, but not much. It's a bit disappointing. It, it, the joke that, for what, legal and tax purposes, he's all basically dead for a year. Yeah, he's spending a year dead for tax purposes. Right, I think I think that's a clever joke, but I just, um, they could have cut that, they could have cut that scene out in my book. I don't know, it's not one of my favorite things. Well, I think, the, I, I have a real fondness for this scene, and I think for me it comes into two things. One... For like, I love the the comedy conceit of a completely one sided conversation. Um, mm-hmm. But the but the other the other thing is, I I've been a part of that kind of conversation. I've been in that conversation where I meet someone I knew from a long time ago who's kind of at the top of the world, and I've also been on the receiving end of the conversation where I seem to be at the at the top of the world. And there is kind of there is kind of a truth about that of people you know of people who sort of drifted apart but are still friends and ended up in completely different places in life and kind of natter on about the about you know a, a type of glory day. Yeah, I, I had a situation with that recently where. Um... I, I met a friend I haven't seen for 10 years because, uh, well, I've been living in Oregon, but he's been teaching in Japan most of that time. And he happens to live in the sister city of Portland in Japan. Oh, so cool. he went with his students and we went out to the arcade and had Slurpees and had a gay old time. And uh, he, but yeah, I mean, it was almost like we were complete strangers because so much it, we were sort of feeling that, oh, what happened? Then what happened this year? And even his, um, 
because of him living in Japan, his speech patterns had changed. Oh. I don't want to say he had an accent, but he almost spoke English in a Japanese rhythm. Interesting. Yeah, it was a very interesting experience. But yeah, you're right. I, I never thought of the scene in that way. Maybe I should watch it again. Um, but this, but this episode it ends in a because you know Marvin helps them steal the uh, starship, uh, and it ends on a much less ambiguous and much more tension building cliffhanger where the ship shoots off on autopilot after the destruction of the universe. And is you find it its disaster areas starship and it's going to crash into the sun and that's that's a that's a much less absurd and much less funny but much more effective cliffhanger than from the previous episode. It is. It's exciting. Um, I think we mentioned the cockpit of the ship it is nothing to write home about, and it, it's described as being so cool and like like um, modern and sleek in the book. Yeah, it, it does not, unfortunately, come across uh, in this episode. Do you think they just redressed the Vogon ship corridor? I I don't know. Like, I know some of the seats look kind of like the seats on the Heart of Gold when uh, Ford and Arthur oh, that could be, first yeah, come yeah. out of the improbability field. Uh, but again, just spray-painted black. But beyond that, it's hard to tell. It is so black and dark inside, you really can't get much of a sense of the shape of the set and I feel like that's more by accident than on purpose mm-hmm. and I mean yeah if you overlit it that would have destroyed the joke they're in a really tough place I think with modern um, I, I hate saying this but with modern CG you could pull that look off much uh, cooler looking yeah the oh, or, one thing that I do yeah. one thing I do like there's a bit where the MC at the restaurant uh, does uh does like talk about some important guests that they have, and the two that are that always stand out. One is that a group of Asgardian gods are there. <laughs> so the the Asgardian gods are the gods that are apparently actually real, uh, which is always just like a, a a fun kind of a fun conceit that gods do exist in this universe, uh, but they're the they're the the Norse gods. Uh, and then the other bit is that uh, there is like a there is a, a church. There's a priest from the church of the second coming of the great prophet Zarquan. And I love the bit that the great prophet Zarquan shows up seconds before the end of space and time. Hmm. That's just that's just a, like a wonderful thing. I love that when the thing happens, but it's just but it's too late. I love that that moment. Yeah, um, so in the, the second episode of the series, not second, shit, the sixth, the final episode. The sixth and final episode, yeah. So, so yeah, the at this point, the uh, the heroes of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy have figured out that the ship they're on is a disaster area ship and is going to crash into the sun. And we get some awesome, we get, I love that model shot where you see the, uh, the stage where disaster area is going to play its music. And they have those giant speakers and, and like as the speakers power up for the rock concert, they like sort of throb and wave in and out as the ground around them cracks. It's really amazing. It's a neat effect and, and I like it's a payoff of the sequence explaining disaster area and how they do their concerts. Yeah. And I love something else I like. There's one of my favorite Hitchhiker's entries and one of my favorite bits from the book as well is when the guide explains how all civilizations pass through three distinct phases. The phases of survival, Inquiry and sophistication, characterized by the questions, how can we eat, why do we eat, and where shall we have lunch? I just, 
I love that. It's one of those freestanding entries that nevertheless leads to kind of a punchline when our protagonists quickly rattle off a version of those questions related to their predicament. I just, I love, it's, it's one of my favorite entries and it's so well shot. And it reminds me of that line, I believe, from the uh, first episode, uh, Time is an Illusion, Lunchtime Doubly So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And, and we get some I, I, good back and, yeah. back and forth with, with Marvin, you know, uh, some just some good some good lines from Zaphod. Oh, I think I'm going to be sick. Well, good, we could use some color around the place. Right, and it's, um, when they leave Marvin behind, I think it's kind of sad. Like, Oh, yeah. But again, it's in keeping with Marvin that he's just kind of shat upon and, and disposable. Because that's oh, it, is that sure. Arthur, in the, in the, they can't contravene the, uh, the autopilot, but Arthur discovers that there is a teleporter on the ship, uh, and, but it's, uh, it's broken. The guidance system has to be operated manually, meaning one of them will have to stay behind and operate it so the rest can get out. And of course, they immediately <laughs> turn to Marvin. Yep. It's uh, it's it's a good gag. It I, I find it sort of sad, but they don't ring it for that much emotion, which they shouldn't, because although we might care, Marvin doesn't care. And it's just one of the you know he's just kind of resigned to his fate. There's a fatalism to Marvin that is kind of endearing. And the other thing I love is that they're loading into the teleporter, and they're you know they're still talking about how they could make a fortune if they could sell the ultimate question out of uh, Arthur's brain. Um, that Marvin happens to mention, oh, I know what the ultimate question is because I can read it in the human's brainwave pattern. That's how smart I am. <laughs> but they don't have time to get it from him. And even then he's like, well, you're not going to like what the question is, so I don't know why I should bother telling you. Mm-hmm. Sort of teasing that out. Um... Yeah, I love that because they kind of forgot the ultimate question in episode five. I like that it comes back again in episode six. Yeah. And... We get the um So yeah, they go on the teleport, they teleport yeah. away in, in a ridiculously cheap effect, and yet I think it's one of the most effective teleportation effects I've ever seen on a BBC production. Cause the teleport chamber is just this kind of cube with a square door. They just do this video effect where everything framed in the square shrinks down into nothing, but then there's just an empty room left in its place. It it's an effect that works. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, and you know after that sequence in the elevator, that's the last we see of Zaphod and Trillian. Yeah, and Marvin, <laughs> they're all gone. And, and Marvin, right? They're all gone. And I mean, it should be noted with the books, you don't, you see them some in the third book, but the fourth and fifth book are like the Arthur and Ford show. But yeah, and speaking of Arthur and Ford, uh, they materialize uh, uh, on a starship, and I and there's a really subtle gag. But I love that when they rematerialize, they're wearing each other's clothes. Yeah, that's a good one, and I and just the whole satire of the Golga Frinchams and the slow reveal. Oh yeah, um, it's so, why the people are on the ship. Well, well, the, the thing that I love is when they were. appear on the ship. They really do their best to try to make this ship seem sinister, with the weird look of the corridors and the weird footsteps they keep hearing. And then, the, then when they think that the ship is full of corpses that are in cold storage, but then they discover that it's people in suspended animation. But yeah, the Gul But then we 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 get the the darkness that is the whole Golgafringum arc story. And it, um, I mean, again, another smart use of the budget here, 
it's not as super crowded as you might expect it to be but other than that it gets the point across the um aubrey morris as the captain in the bathtub oh he's so good he's he's, he's excellent i mean it's the kind of role you can imagine john goodman playing <laughs> and again there's there's a lot of great there's a lot of great line you know he's like oh we've got a message from number one he sort of found some prisoners oh good he's always wanted some <laughs> Can I interrogate them? Please, can I interrogate them? Oh, ask them what they want to drink. And he, like, brutally interrogates them <laughs> what they want to drink. It's it's just a lot of, like, there's enough material in this scene for several comedy sketches. But you, fi- you find out that the Gulga Fringems, they're colonists, uh, that their planet was doomed. And so they were going to send three arcs uh, to start life on a new world. And in arc A was going to go all the great leaders and thinkers and scientists and artists. And in arc C was going to go all the people who do things, the architects, the builders, the engineers, the the clothing makers. And in arc B was going to go the middlemen, the advertising executives, the telephone sanitizers, uh, the bureaucrats. Uh, And they sent them off, oh, and the hairdressers, and they sent them off first because they wanted to ha- go, to, they wanted to colonize a planet where you could be sure to get a good haircut. But then you find out that's not true. That right. the planet Fringe <laughs> wanted to get rid of the useless third of their population, so they made up a fake story about a mutant star goat coming to eat the planet to trick all the useless people into leaving by loading them into an ark that's programmed to crash into a planet. But what I love is that after the ark leaves and the planet doesn't get a golden age, the entire planet dies because of a plague spread by telephones that weren't sanitized. Right. It's uh, it's a bit of a slow build, but the, the payoff is good. And I love I that mean, like, yeah. Ford is the only one who gets it and is like, <laughs> even as they're saying, well, you know, for some reason, and I can't understand why, we were programmed to crash. <laughs> You're all bloody useless. Oh, yes, that's why. <laughs> right. Like, even the captain apparently knows what's going on. Just too dumb to do anything about it. And it turns off they crash on Earth. Yeah, they crash on a primitive was planet. Destroyed. Yeah, and Arthur and Dent go on a quest and discover that it is prehistoric Earth because they find Slarty Bartfast's signature on a glacier, which I wish we could have seen. Although at the same time, I'm mm-hmm. kind of glad that they don't. I, I like that. I like that if you're not familiar with the books, you're kind of kept in a little bit of suspense, sort of like with Planet of the Apes. And you can justify like the time travel because they were at the restaurant at the end of the universe, right? Oh, oh yeah. Where oh. it was in a time bubble, and so the elevator, you know, probably the teleporter. Or, sorry, teleporter. Vast you know, difference got, between those two technologies. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yes. Um, got got its wires crossed and sent people. One maybe you know Zaphod went forward in time. Who knows? Like, but the highlight of this episode for me is when Ford and Arthur come back to the Golga Fringems uh, as they're having a committee meeting about the planet, and we just see all the stupid things that these people are doing. Like, they tried, like, they, they, they have a committee to invent fire, and all they've invented is curling tongs using the sticks that they were given. There's the committee for inventing the wheel, and they fuck up the wheel. And I, yes. I love that whole exchange. You, you couldn't even do the wheel, and it's the simplest machine in the entirety of the universe. Well, all right, if you're so smart, why don't you tell us what color it's supposed to be? 
Oh god, the the whole thing about how like they they founded an economy by found by founding a currency. Their currency is the leaf, so to prevent the leaf from being destroyed by inflation, they're burning down forests. Um the, and, and I love I love that marketing executive who just keeps going on in these marketing speeches. You know, you know when you when you've been in marketing and public relations as long as I have, you learn to anticipate things. A product must be tested. You know, why do people want fire? You know, what is what, why why do they want it? Oh, you can stick it up your nose. Yes, that's what we need to know. Do people want fire that can be applied nasally? It's it's just absurd. It's whip smart satire. And it gives um, I mean, you a dark place because, you know, you find yes. Arthur's trying to help the cavemen evolve and Ford spells it all out that uh, that not only is, is humanity not descended from the cavemen, they're descended from the useless Golgofringums, but that that means the entire computer program of Earth was contaminated. So the ultimate question that it that it produced right before the Vogons blew it up is not the right question. So it's all pointless. Yes, I uh, very nihilistic. I, I I always get a little misty eyed at the end when it plays "What a Wonderful World" by Louis Armstrong. Oh god, that is the perfect ending, and isn't it? And you know, I, I like when they try to decipher the question using the Scrabble bag, which leads to a fun little math joke. But yeah, just the way it ends with Arthur and Ford just walking walking away down a river just being friends and sharing stories and talking about things they've read in the guide it's a wonderful world plays it's so beautiful and then the last shot where the area they're walking with turns into a graphic in the hitchhiker's guide and we get the entry for earth mostly harmless and then that 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 stinger from the theme song as we see the guide drifting through outer space flashing don't panic it is a great way to wrap this up it is. You know, you start with the guide, you end with the guide, and um, it, it's just a shame that, narratively, this is as far, we only get two big books into what's now, I guess, a six-book series. Yeah, uh, um, a, tr- a trilogy in six parts. Right. You know, and, it represented in a visual medium. And, it's, and it is so weird, because... I mean, because Hitchhiker's only got more and more popular after this, and I know there's... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Arthur Simon Jones, who played Arthur Dent, there, there's an interview with him where he talks about the bathrobe that he wore for the entire thing, and he talked about how it became his favorite thing to wear, and he wanted to keep it, but the BBC wardrobe department wouldn't let him keep it because they were holding it in case they had to do a new series. That new series never manifested. And I always wonder what would Hitchhiker's legacy have, have been if there had been another six-part series. You know, would... Would that six-part series been the entirety of what would be be the third novel in her own reality? Would it have been something different? And knowing the way Douglas Adams interacts with deadlines, how long would we have had to wait to see that happen? Right. I mean, allegedly it would have been based on Adams's uh, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men uh, script that never got made, which in itself was the inspiration for the third book. And it's a great book. In in is in all honesty of of all the Hitchhiker's books. The third probably is my favorite. Now, it's not the best, but it's my favorite. It's my least favorite. Really? My favorite is So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Hmm. I... Even though I normally don't like romance in novels, I think the romance is very sweet between uh, Arthur and Fenchurch. It's it's nice that Arthur gets to have happiness. Like, real happiness. I I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And um, I've been listening to the the radio series the past few weeks. 
And the way they adapt and the additional material they add into the radio play of um, Mostly Harmless is very clever. They get Zaphod back in there. And um, they end with... I guess I shouldn't spoil it if people haven't listened to it, but they have the ending of the book, and then it's followed up with a very nice uh, original epilogue. So I'll just leave it at that. But um, yeah, so... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We, we've talked a lot about the the BBC series. Um, any any final thoughts? I mean, I think it, it really ends strong, right? It, it, some of the some of the early episodes kind of drag, I think, and uh, the, the the idea to adapt the second book into two episodes instead of four, and they just do the back half of the book is um, is a wise decision. And the budget hurts some of it, but not as much as you would think. I mean, it's it's the best that the BBC was it was capable of at, at the time with the effects, you know. Even and I still find I still find that charming. It only it only helps cement the Britishness of this production, right? Um, it so I mean, would you say sequel yes or sequel no to these last two episodes? I, I would. It's such a beautiful ending. It does not need a, mm. a sequel in any way. But I would say sequel, yes. I still would love to have seen what would have happened if another series of Hitchhikers had been made. Yeah, um, I, I would say sequel, yes, as well. And I would argue, if you didn't have a lot of time, you had a friend over and you wanted to show him what Hitchhikers is all about, you could skip right to these last two episodes. And In a way, you're, could. <laughs> you know, you and but you could. That you shouldn't, but if you, and for some reason you only had an hour with a friend... And wanted to introduce them to this universe. It's not a bad way to do it because um, you get a sense of who the characters are. They're these quick little adventures, and it and it has a good ending. So you could also watch the episodes backwards if you wanted, I suppose. But I don't know why you would do such a thing. Oh, you um, know, I just discovered something. So Beth Porter, who played the marketing, the woman from marketing. She did ADR recording for the death throes of Veronica Cartwright in Alien. How strange. Yeah. Cause that those are some good screams. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, you know, you discover interesting things when you do your pre-search. Right. Um I mean also John Glover, who plays the marketing guy, was in the pilot for Whose Line Is It Anyway? Oh yeah. But he's, he does a lot of voiceover um, work, including Adventures of Paddington Bear and the Mr. Bean animated series, which I find somewhat annoying. I've never seen it. I stood away, I stayed away from that. It's bad. Uh, the, the art style is sort of cute, and they, they do get um, Rowan Atkinson to do the grunts. But, it, it, I mean, the whole point is supposed to be live action, you know, silent film kind of comedy. And when it's a cartoon, it's like, well, okay, it's a cartoon. He can do anything. There's no tension there. Um... Anywho, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yes. So, um, pitch a sequel, I suppose. It's always This is very strange to do with the series where there's like a lot of books they never filmed. Oh, don't um, worry. I think I've come up with a great idea. Now, why don't you start with yours, then? All right. So my pitch a sequel, it's not going to be so much as pitch a sequel as pitch a spinoff. So I love that, that Arthur is trying to educate the cavemen and help them evolve by teaching them spelling with Scrabble, a Scrabble game that he's made. So my sequel would be, if there's another series, 
it wouldn't be a narrative continuation of the series. It would be a family, a children and families educational series called The Ultimate Question. And the framing device for the series is Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect are trying to teach cavemen things like basic shapes, foundational science, foundational mathematics concepts. And so Arthur Ford, cavemen, and guide entries are used to introduce these concepts to a young audience, but in hilarious fashion with Douglas Adams' trademark sense of humor. I would... Yeah, that's neat. So, yeah, what a, what a neat little device there. You know, I think my pitch is sequel would be... Um, similar in that it would be a spinoff series, but it would just... Uh, I would just call it Millaways. Hmm. And you would do a wraparound story. Um, now that I think of it, I'm stealing this from a book and computer game series, which I can't think of. Uh, Space Bar book series, what is it called? Um, I'm not explaining this very well. So what it would be, it would be the restaurant at the end of the universe, the bartender would be kind of the main character. An alien or a human or what or a robot or whatever would saunter up to the bartender and start telling his story, and then we get these capsule stories. You know, very British uh, comedies. Uh, some would be comedies, some would be dramas, some would be musicals. They could be whatever genre they wanted, and then the wraparound would finish with the the guy at the bar finishing his story, and then some business would go on at the bar. Hmm. Um, there also would be a regular segment in every show that would be how to cook a dish on the restaurant at the end of the universe. And would it be a real dish you could make, or would it be some crazy, impossible sci-fi thing? Um, it would always start, I think, as a crazy, impossible sci-fi thing, and then it would flash the uh, realistic version, the recipe, briefly on the screen. So you'd have to videotape it and pause to actually catch what the recipe itself was. If a Miglian major cow is not available, use a porterhouse steak. Right, yeah, yeah, things like that. Um, and whipster, I, I think, you know, whipster, whip, whipster. <laughs> so I think that that concept would, you know, lend itself well to a series, as would yours. There's so many rich things in this universe. Uh, I'm a bit surprised they didn't do more books after they did the uh, posthumous um, sixth book. I I am sure that that has been discussed. It's all about finding the the right authors and getting the right people in the estate to sign off on it. I I am confident we have not seen the last posthumous Hitchhiker's novel. Do you think, um, with, with BBC, um, you know, having the successful uh, new Dirk Gently series, which just got renewed for, I think the second season premieres this fall, actually, do you think we could get uh, Hitchhiker's done as a miniseries again? I don't see why not. I mean, the, the Hitchhiker's... Hitchhikers has is constantly reinvented for new mediums uh, and sometimes old mediums. I see no reason why we won't see yet another adaptation of this within our lifetimes. Should it start at the first book or just start at the third? Uh, I guess I guess it depends. If you're going for like a nostalgia thing, start with the third and try to get as many of the original people involved as possible. Third age, yeah. But, but I have nothing against just you know starting from the beginning. That's how the other adaptations have done it and been successful. I don't see why this couldn't. Right, I think, you know, there's enough meat to chew on, and although these are based on radio shows and, and books that are not the most plot-heavy, let's be honest, it, it is more of a sketch uh, structure, as you uh, smartly pointed out, that you could do a season for each book, I think would be the proper way to do it. Because um, the books get awfully weird, especially, uh, so a lot of things for all the fish and mostly harmless. I have not read the sixth book. 
Um, not neither have I. Yeah, uh, I. If I find it for cheap enough at the bookstore, I'll buy it. But I keep on waiting for it to drop in price because it's like I'm not paying fifteen dollars for this. Because <laughs> um, I'm a bit cheap in that respect. Um, but I mean, yeah, let's let's talk. We touched on it, but I think we have a little bit of time here before we go to the what you're watching segment. What do you think of the other books in the series? You mentioned uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything is your um, favorite. It, it's my favorite, and for me, it's it's the high point. And as much as I like these books, from that point on, for me, with the exception of Arthur's love story, it's just diminishing returns. And the last, and although I will say this, the last book that Douglas Adams wrote is such a fuck you. I've got to give him a slow clap. Mostly harmless, you mean? Yeah, mostly harmless. Where mm. it's like, like the whole the whole book, the premise of the whole book says, "Oh, you want another one of these? Okay." And you, you get the idea that, um, and, and Douglas Adams has said as much, he's a writer that hates writing, right? <laughs> he loves to hear the sounds of deadlines whooshing past. Right, and he's one that's terrible at deadlines. And so, like, literally, there in, in the biography, I think we mentioned by Neil Gaiman and elsewhere, they, they, they mention his agent uh, getting him a hotel room with, like, a bath, because he loved to take a bath as a procrastination <laughs> technique. He was the cleanest writer around, I suppose, in that respect. Um and like for like lock him in a hotel room until he's done with the book, like that's what they would have to do to get him to finish writing. And I, uh, that's I write best in those circumstances. Strangely enough, sometimes I think that is the best thing you can do. Uh yeah. I I mean, all writers I think like to procrastinate unless you're Stephen King and of such a, um. I mean, he's been writing ten pages a day every day for. 40 years like that's always able to have like 50 books or whatever it is it's which is crazy and uh, i there's um i listened to this podcast uh, uh hosted by mer lafferty and matt wallace or matt walsh something like that i think i think it's matt wallace yes uh and it's called um i should be writing is her solo show the show they do together is i have to look it up because i'm good at research as you can tell there's a pre-search failure there uh yeah i i pre-searched ditch diggers is what it's called sort of a, a bit of a raw um sort of a business advice or for writers and they mention in there that you know uh even her herself um, or lafferty one of the co-hosts of the show doesn't you know beats herself up about writing and has self-doubt and feels like, oh, if I'm not doing 10 pages a day like Stephen King, I'm not, you know, if I'm not writing every day, I'm not really a writer. Which I, I think is sort of nonsense. I mean, yes, you should be writing as much as possible as a writer, especially if that's your main source of income. But uh, you're going to have bad days. And you need days for um, self-care. And you, you need to have maintain your mental and physical health, you know? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I believe it's a Douglas Adams quote, but it's like, he gets the question, well, how do you get your ideas? And it's like, you stare at a blank piece of paper until your forehead bleeds. <laughs> it's, it's, a, writing's really hard, man. And um, I've been doing nonfiction stuff for online for gee, almost 10 years now. Um, and nonfiction I can do, but like fiction I'm terrible at, unless it's like a screenplay where I'm mainly writing dialogue. Because I don't know what it is. I don't have that, um that gene in me 
Speaking you know, of jeans, what I'm oh, go on. Oh well, no, something that is, as long as we're, we're sort of on on the the Douglas Adams subject. So I have never been able to find this again. But back when back when Bravo used to show arts, um, they showed a really great documentary uh, about Douglas Adams, where they kind of blended fact fact and fiction. Um, hmm. Where you know they had interviews with Douglas Adams and people who had worked with him, but then they also had. Uh, Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect in character talking about like having having like an adventure where they find a copy of one of Douglas Adams books and come to terms with the fact that they're fictional characters and they get the actors from the miniseries back. How strange. And they also do new animated hitchhikers entries. They're not animated nearly as well as in this series, but it's still a valiant effort. There's a great bit where they explain how hippos view time uh, using hitchhikers. And one of the things that I remember that that really stuck with me from that is Douglas Adams talking about how every time I how every time he writes a hitchhiker's book, he swears that it's the last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like after I wrote the third one, that was it. I was done. So I wrote a fourth one. And then I was done. I'm never going to write this again. So I wrote a fifth one. And the fifth one came out, and that's going to be the last one, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Which is why I suspect I will be writing the sixth one in a few months. <laughs> part, part of me wonders if floating around in his paper, like in his papers, is there like a sketch of a sixth Hitchhiker's novel? I, you know, I, I read a very interesting, I was sort of, you know, doing a, a deep, Google dive and Douglas Adams trying to find all strange nooks and crannies and one was uh, and I have no way to prove if this is true so it could be the dreaded fake news um, the, the person claimed he bought a, uh, a used uh, Mac from the BBC and it happened to be one of Douglas Adams old computers hmm. and it had some like sketch material on there that was never used and um, n- no unpublished books or anything no, no big treasures but I, I just thought that was what a fun little treat to find. I mean, I think that would... You could put that in a museum or something. Um, I, I would like to mention on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy BBC series DVD, there's an excellent documentary on Douglas Adams' life. Oh, yes. I, lo- I love the, that bit where they show clips of the sketch show uh, that he did yes. with Graham Chapman. Yep, <laughs> and, so those yeah. are some great clips. Good clips. You talk about um, Terry Jones talks about his friendship with Douglas Adams, and there are a lot. If memory serves, I haven't seen it in a while. And um, I managed to uh, <laughs> rip that to VHS. Cool. Uh, when it when it came out, and then I tried to show it to my dad when we were on vacation, and it made him fall asleep within five minutes. Huh. So soothing British accents put my father to sleep. Lesson one. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, this has been a fun series to talk about, and when we talk about the uh, big-budget Disney feature film next week, that we're going to have to really get into it, because they make some very uh, wild and crazy changes to the source material. There will be much to discuss, I'm sure. Absolutely. What you watching? what you watching? I have... Is that going to be the new official theme song? Are we going to cut that into every episode? Uh, no, mainly because I don't want to take the work of cutting things in. Um, <laughs> so, I have been watching... Uh, I, I finished up watching the Castlevania series on Netflix. Oh, I saw that too. And uh, I think we, we touched on this briefly where I had just seen the first episode. And now that I've seen all four episodes, um, I really hope the first Justice League movie doesn't end like this series ends. <laughs> <laughs> because 
it even though it's called Castlevania, which is the name of Dracula's castle with all these little nooks and crannies, it feels like it ends just as it's getting started. But it, yeah, the, it does. Yeah, it, it really leaves you wanting more. It, it does, and it got renewed for second season, which is cool. But animation takes a while to do. Um, I'm not sure where it was animated, but because they go for that anime style, and maybe it was done by an anime house. I have no idea about their production. I believe it was. Was it okay? Because um, so, because the animation I thought was pretty good. There's some somewhat dodgy CG here and there, but it's it's stylish. It captures the look of the concept art of the later uh, PlayStation and PlayStation 2 games of the series. And it, it makes you feel bad for Dracula, which I was not expecting. I think that first episode is by far and away the best one. Yeah, they do a good job of setting him up as a sympathetic villain. And you, you can tell that this was written by Grant Morrison. Miss Warren Ellis. Oh, Warren Ellis, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, Warren Ellis. You can tell it's written by Warren Ellis. Certainly, and I love um, one line of dialogue says, Snake fuckingly crazy, which I thought <laughs> is a fun turn of phrase. Uh, I hope they bring Warren Ellis back. By all accounts, it sounds like they're going to, and uh, I can't wait for what goes on. Um, as far as, because, I mean, it's based on a Nintendo game that has maybe like three sentences of plot. Uh, oh, guy maybe, with maybe, whip kills Dracula, that's it. <laughs> Well, it in the the, the game is a notable Castlevania Three: Dracula's Curse is the American title of it because it's a prequel, um, and the the games have their own weird canon that's overly complicated for me to get into right now. Yeah, apparently all the games take place on these on a single unified but non-linear timeline. Y- yes, um, which also includes the events of the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker if they actually happened. Don't ask me why. It just trust me on that one. Um, so uh, what I was—I think what I was trying to get at in the original Nintendo game, at the end of certain levels, it's a like a branching path. You can go: Am I going into the clock tower? Am I going into the woods? And depending on where you go, you recruit different people for your team. You can only have one teammate, but one of these is Silpha, the female wizard, who's in the show. Um, there's Alucard, who is also in the show. Um, although the way he looks in the Nintendo game looks a bit more like a, you know, the classic image of Dracula, uh, with the, the black hair and the cape, not the sort of, um, I, I, I don't want to say homosexual, I guess Bishonen like look of how, um, Alucard looks like in the show. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, but he but he had that look in, in Symphony of the Night. You know, he did, absolutely. And that's the, the look of the character people recognize. But I'm saying technically his original incarnation... I wasn't bothered by it, but he just looked more like a normal vampire, what you would think. Um, and then the third character, who has not shown up in the Netflix series, but he might for season two, is the unfortunately named Grant Dynasty, uh, who is a thief. <laughs> who is a thief who can climb on walls and is really quick, and he can climb upside down. Um, whether they have that character or not, I'm not sure, but there you go. So yeah, cool, cool show. I'd recommend it. It's short. Um, I've been seeing some people online really hate it, and I'd like to try to dig into some of those reviews and figure out why, because um, before it came out, one of the producers was saying, like, all video game movies or shows are shit, and this is going to be the first good one. And well, they, they are, except for Street Fighter, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and the first Tomb Raider. I would also say the first Silent Hill, I, I thought was pretty good, but he, yeah, he's right. Like, it's not, it, there's not a great track record there, right? 
But oh, actually, um, Mortal Kombat, uh, first Mortal Kombat, sure. is pretty good. You can I, I'll agree with that, that at sequelcast2.podbean.com. Um, see what I did there? That's called a plug. So, plug it in, plug it in. Um, yeah, so Castlevania Netflix, highly recommended. Uh, even if you don't know what Castlevania is, give the first episode a shot. Uh, some of my friends online have fallen in love with it. They don't even know what Castlevania is, but they just got sucked into the storytelling. Uh, you know, very, very much uh, gothic, um, you know, sort of a combination of, uh, I think Warren Ellis said this, but it's like the old Hammer horror films of the 60s done through like an anime lens, but there's still a lot of Western influence to the design. It's not super anime looking, if I'm making sense here. Thrasher, what you watching? All right, I watched something that I am only bringing it up to steer people away from it, and that is the uh, 2014 horror film Ascent to Hell. This is an awful movie. You touched on this uh, last time, so did you finish it? Mm, uh, uh, I no, I could not get to the end. My wife finished it, and uh, apparently, it, it like. Every horrible thing that I expected might happen in this hackneyed film did, in fact, happen. Well, let's go into it a bit more since you didn't, um, you sort of touched on it lightly, I think, last week. So, Ascent to Hell, I think that's sort of an interesting, intriguing title, but what, what does it mean? Like, what, what's the story about? So, so the, the short version is that it's a, uh, there's this uh, old, there's like this old, like, uh, turn of the century uh, factory that is uh, that is on the market, and there's a woman who wants to buy it to turn it into a place to make designer handbags, and the real estate agency that has the contract for selling this property, they get this weird letter saying that they'll, they can sell the property, but this one specific young woman who just started working at the company has to be the one who shows the property to potential buyers. Now, this is a fact that the movie states and restates multiple times. Okay. The entire first act is just the repetition of the same three bits of expository dialogue. Does it all take place, like, on one set? Uh, it all, well, uh, all, uh, the beginning takes place in the real estate office, but from, but from that point on, it all takes place uh, in the uh, warehouse factory building. Oh, a factory. I love settings in a factory. And it's just... And it's just, like, it's probably, like, the, the setting they're using probably is exactly, like, it's it's filmed in the exact location that the movie is set in to this movie's detriment. Because it, it looks just, it looks like a shitty old factory that somebody deliberately cleared all the contents out of. Do like we, this, yeah. this kind of property in the real world is full of all sorts of litter and detritus mm. and, and just all sorts of crap, but it's not. It is, like, suspiciously clean, except all the walls are crumbling and covered with graffiti. So, do you think, um, are there any cool demon designs with a name like Ascent to Hell? I'm expecting no. some demon action. No? No, it's just the building killing people in oh, dumb ways. that's terrible. Oh yeah, like like one one guy like goes out on this on this like fire escape balcony, and just like falls off of it and is hanging from the fire escape, and the fire escape in an awful digital effect just starts burning red hot and he falls from it because he can't hold on to the he can't hold on to the ledge anymore, 
and that's what all the kills are like. It's just people... The, the kills are uninspired. The characters only exist to spout their own exposition. They're all acted very, very flatly. Uh, at, at no point do you care about anyone in this movie. Very little happens. And then it all builds to this really shitty twist ending where like, it turns out that the real estate agent is descended from the architect who built this factory, but he built his own factories specifically to burn down and kill people. Ugh. And wants to sort of get her to go to his old buildings and burn them down with people inside them. It's just, well, why is that a ghost's motivation? It's quite Why forced. does a ghost care about that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. The last cool, like, sort of haunted story I saw that sort of drew me in, I'm not a big fan of ghost stories in general, but um, I was watching a bit of that uh, short-lived TV series Constantine based on the comic, and and there is an episode of, like, haunted... Uh, there is a haunted coal mine in West Virginia where there were dead miners coming back to life huh. to wreak havoc on the corporation that caused... Uh, to cause their deaths due to lax uh, safety requirements. It was pretty interesting, and a lot of good fire effects. Um, so, yeah, Ascent to Hell, you would say, despite the fact you've talked about it for two episodes, you would not recommend it. Yeah, just, it's not worth it. It's not even a fun, bad movie. There's no, oh, that's the worst. No amount of I alcohol see. makes this okay. entertaining. Where it's just, like, boring, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and, the, and the thing that's shitty is that it is competently shot. Hmm. Like it, it feel it feels like a student film by people who have no artistic sensibilities, but a lot of technical skill. That's uh, that's too bad. But you know that's why so many horror films are made is that you can usually make your money back because horror fans will watch uh, will try anything once. And I say that with as much respect as you think I mean. <laughs> so leave that open to interpretation. Uh huh very politician of me um that's not even god i didn't even use that word correctly okay next week we're talking about the live action big budget disney uh, touchstone film hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and then the week after that we'll be talking about the uh, police story 5 lockdown it's also known as police story 2013 if you're in uh, asia uh follow the show on twitter at sequelcast2 be sure to like our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search SequelCast2. And leave us a nice, juicy review on iTunes. Search SequelCast2 on iTunes. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. So for SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. You know, I read about it in a book. What book is that? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've never heard of that book. Well, there goes the quote. <laughs> we, maybe we should just play It's a Wonderful World over the end. Or... Oh, not Marvin, oh. I Love You? Oh, that's fine. Marvin, I Love You. Oh, actually, be... Marvin, I Love You would be perfect. Yeah, Marvin, oh. I Love It. Now, do you like that more than the other track, the Marvin? I listened, I listened to the whole album. I actually really enjoyed it, but that is the most fun kind of pop-inspired song. Marvin, I Love You? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think it, it even charted in the UK. Um, looks like Douglas yeah. Adams did the lyrics. And they had the actor from, you know, the, the radio show and the TV show do the voice. <laughs> Here's a bit of Marvin trivia. We could end on this. Oh. Um, so, 
Uh, we had I had mentioned, uh, I believe, on last week's show, I had all the Hitchhikers, the first five books, on audio cassette read out loud by Douglas Adams. When they did Marvin, for some of the books, they used, they treated his voice to sound electronic like a robot. And for some of the books, they did not. It's a very odd um, choice. <laughs> because it's clear they recorded all the, him doing all the books at the same time. Um, because of when the sets were released. And so why you would not do robot treatment for a robot character on an audiobook is baffling. Sequelcast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at battleshippretension.com. The theme song to Sequelcast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequelcast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequelcast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 